Hi everyone, my name is Sanvi and I'm a high school student and I actually run my own podcast and today we are here interviewing Professor, how do you pronounce it? Is it? Macosco. Macosco, there we go. Okay, I like so... to tell people it's like the store Costco with a ma in front of it. <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking we could just start out with you kind of explaining a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm a professor of physics at Wake Forest University, and I do mostly biophysics. And when I interview professors at my website, which is called academicinfluence.com, I like to ask them to start from the very beginning. So how they got interested in their particular career. So in my case, it's because my father was a professor at the University of Minnesota in the sciences. And growing up, I saw what kind of a life he lived with uh, getting to fly to foreign countries, getting to do public speaking, getting to do a lot of writing, clear, concise writing, and getting to stand up in front of students and teach them and mentor them and things like that. So I liked what I saw my dad was doing, and I wanted to do the same thing myself. Um, so my whole life, I've wanted to be a professor. And the reason I'm in biophysics is kind of part of the twists and turns of life. I, I didn't really plan on being a biophysicist. In high school, I liked math and I didn't like it so much that I wanted to be a mathematician, but I knew that um, physics was kind of applied math in some ways. So I wanted to be a physicist. And then I went off to MIT and I signed up for the really hard physics classes, the honors ones. And there were so many more smart people in those classes than me that I actually decided not to be a physicist. And I ended up as a chemistry major, partly because I had a lot of credits from high school in chemistry. I ended up taking chemistry at the University of Minnesota and those credits transferred to MIT. Unlike a lot of AP classes, they don't really transfer, mm -hmm. but because I actually took them at a university, they were kind of like transfer credits. So I was able to graduate in two and a half years, which was really nice, saved a lot of money. And then I went off to uh, graduate school in chemistry. But that's kind of when I got into biophysics because I ended up doing my PhD in biophysical chemistry. So it's kind of a mixture of all three of those sciences. And I did my postdoctoral work in, um, you know, some physics labs. Uh, Carlos Bustamante is a physics professor at UC Berkeley, and he was one of my uh, postdoc advisors. Um, his friend David Keller is in the chemistry department at the University of New Mexico. And he was one of my mentors, and he's very physics-y, extremely physics-y. Um, so when I applied for jobs, I did apply for a lot of chemistry jobs, but I also applied for whatever I could find. And mm -hmm. Wake Forest University was looking for a physics professor to replace Dr. George Holtzworth, who was retiring. And Dr. George Holtzworth was a longtime uh, biophysicist who is famous for having invented circular dichroism, which is a way of looking at beta sheets and alpha helices in um, proteins. And so he was retiring. And um, so I, I applied for the job and I got the job and he and I have become collaborators because even though he retired, he never stopped doing research. And he, we're 16 years after he retired and he still comes into work all the time, except for COVID now, mm -hmm. um, but he still works really hard and we, we enjoy mentoring students together. Um, so that's kind of, my trajectory of how I got to where I am right now. 
And um, I really enjoy my job. I love the teaching. Yeah. I think it's really cool how you've like explored all three areas. Like you've done a little bit of biochemistry as well as physics. And now you're trying to combine biology and physics, which I think is really interesting. So what like what are you currently researching and like why do you think that specifically is important to learn about okay well like a lot of professors i have more than one area of research right now i uh do a little bit of um, cellular work so right now i have an nih grant that looks at the virus particles um, that um, come from a certain type of virus that's not too dangerous to humans but it's used as a model virus um, and it's a lot like things like um, rabies virus, so it has some of the same properties. And it starts uh, by being made inside of the cell once it infects a cell, and it has to be transported from near the nucleus all the way out to the outside to release and infect more cells. So I'm studying the process that the motor proteins move that viral particle to the outside of the cell. That's one area. The second area that I'm doing research in is in cancer. I have a graduate student who's working on her PhD project in the stiffness of cancer cells. So uh, we take a little thing called an atomic force microscope, which is like a little needle, and it pokes on the cells. And we poke on cancerous cells versus non-cancerous cells. And we look at them as they're dividing to see if their stiffness properties change as they're dividing. And the importance of that is that if you can understand what makes a cancer cell uh, have different physical properties, you might have some insight into how they're different and how you can kill those cancer cells differently than you could kill uh, the normal cells. And you could also maybe try to change the cancer cells to go back to being normal cells. So those are some of the ideas behind that. Um, a third project is actually with this academicinfluence.com website. I um, teach a class to freshmen called uh, Big Data. It's a big data class and looking at big data as it pertains to the most influential people in the world. So at uh, academicinfluence.com, we look at who has the most influence by gathering data from huge data sets and trying to process who has made the biggest impact in various fields. So today I had the privilege of interviewing some anthropologists and some political scientists about what makes them influential. And I found them because of these uh, data sets. And using big data is typically the job for a computer scientist. So I have to work closely with some uh, PhDs in computer science. Um, but as a physicist, I can understand data. And I can understand mm -hmm. how you can find patterns in data. And so it's been really rewarding for me to work with these computer scientists to try to tease out who is the most influential people in the world. And the fun thing is once you find the most influential people, you could find out what universities they got their undergraduate degree at and their graduate degree at. And if they were a professor, which universities did they work at? And then you can match those people to those universities and find the most influential universities in the world. So we have a ranked list of the most influential universities, which is really fascinating. Um, and then we also have a list that complements that list of the most desirable universities. So we, mm -hmm. we got a data set of where people decided to go to school when they got into multiple schools. 
So if they decide between school A and school B and they pick school A, then we know that school A is more desirable than school B. So this summer I worked with a high school student in Boston and he and I put together a list of the most desirable universities in the world based on that list. So that was a, real, a lot of fun. Yeah, that seems really interesting, especially like because I'm a high school senior and I'm applying to college. I can definitely like relate to the idea of wanting to research so many universities because they're all so different, have so many like po positives and negatives. So I think that's really like cool to research. So today I wanted to talk a little bit about like different barriers that minority students might face when entering STEM fields. So I wanted to ask you specifically because you're you are in such an interdisciplinary field, if you think that there are any like specific problems or barriers that students can face when they're entering a field like yours, which is such a connection between so many different fields. Well, thanks. That's a really important question, and I'm glad to answer it. Um, I'm a physicist right now in a physics department. And what I see in my department is that students need a very thorough understanding of mathematics for them to be successful and to graduate with a degree in physics. And a lot of students who are coming from backgrounds where people haven't gone to college before, uh, their neighborhoods might have a school that's not very good at math because there's just not a lot of resources and there's not a lot of people in their neighborhood who want to take the more advanced math classes, um, they might show up at the university without enough math in order to really do well, or they feel like they're playing catch up. Even if they're really mm -hmm. smart, they just haven't learned all those math skills that they'll need to be in the physics department. So sometimes um, a backdoor route might be appropriate. Like for me, I didn't major in physics. Um, I felt underpowered compared to the other people in these uh, honors physics classes. And I dropped out. So I'm, I'm kind of a physics dropout. And I think that happens to a lot of people from underprivileged backgrounds um, mm -hmm. where, you know, their, their neighborhood doesn't have a good school. Their parents never went to maybe college. Uh, they might drop out after trying a difficult STEM career. So uh, physics is probably the most, most math intensive of the sciences. Um, and I got into physics by going to one of the less math intensive chemistry. If you want to go into chemistry, but you don't have enough math for that, because it does require some math, you could consider going into biology and work your mm -hmm. way back into chemistry. You know, see, see how these backdoor methods can kind of help people. And then, you know, graduating with any degree at a university um, might still allow you to later study one of the STEM fields. So you, you might, again, just feel like, gosh, I took general chemistry and I got a C. I just don't feel like I can get my degree in chemistry, but I'm doing well in my political science classes. Well, you could go into political science and then work your way back into something that deals with the STEM fields. You can look at the policies behind that. You can even get a, you know, a minor in chemistry or you could... Um, go to a master's program or even just do something online that helps you tool up your uh, your chemistry side or biology or whatever the science that you're really interested in. So you can always do these backdoor methods that will help you as you move forward in your career. Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point, especially about how a lot of people, they often start out in these fields, but then they maybe later end up dropping out or end up switching career paths. So how do you think that 
Well, first of all, how do you think that a little bit of that can be prevented as like maybe how to encourage people to persevere through something that they like really want to do, but they might not feel that they have the resources to do at the moment? Well, the key there is to get help from other people and to get help right away. If, you, if you're willing to put in the work, I feel like anybody who you know is smart enough to get to college um, should be able to do these classes. Um, one of my children just took a very challenging class and it really required all of her effort to, to focus on that class and to, to get a passing grade. Um, but if you were willing to put in the work, you can do it. The key is to get help early. So if, mm -hmm. if you know this is gonna be a challenging class, you know you're not as well prepared as some of the other people in the class, start in the very first week to find the TAs or the tutors that can help you. And most universities have it set up where these things are probably free. They want you to mm -hmm. succeed. They don't want you to fail. Universities, as, as I've now learned uh, from ranking them and looking at how um, US News and World Report ranks different universities, they get graded by how many students that they can retain. And if you drop out of their school, that's like a point against them on the ranking list. Mm -hmm. So they want you to succeed and they want you to, to, to be able to get the help you need. So look for that help early on. That's one of the key points. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, especially with trying to figure out like all the different resources that a university might offer. I think that learning how to navigate all that early on can really help someone if you find that you're struggling maybe in your second or third year, but you haven't really looked at the like all the different services that they have to offer. So something that you also mentioned earlier was about how it's important to kind of keep an open mind and be open to these back doors, like you call them, about different ways to get into these science or STEM fields. So how, like, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to maybe navigate that transition during their career? That's a great question. Well, uh, first of all, if you are a high school senior and you've gotten into a few colleges, the temptation is to always go with the best college that you've gotten into. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that's not always the best choice because um, I, I read, a, you know, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I, I read a, a pretty well-researched book by Malcolm Gladwell um, called David and Goliath. And in that book, he actually um, goes against some of his earlier books. And he says that going to the college that is uh, too advanced for where you're ready for can actually um, make you fail later in, in what you wanted to do. And, and he tells the story of a, a young lady who really liked the sciences, really loved all the STEM fields. And she got into a great school and she chose that school, but then she didn't do as well in those classes at that great school because there was so much competition. And um, this lady said that if she had gone to one of the less great schools that she got into, um, she probably would still be a scientist. But because she went to uh, a school that was really elite, then um, she ended up dropping out of the sciences. So one of the strategies might be, as if you're looking at the different choices in the schools you got into, maybe take a school that you know you can be successful at. You, you have to know yourself. You don't always have to go to the top school if you, if you feel like you might not be successful there, if you're nervous about not being successful there. Um, now, I'm not gonna tell my own children that because I think my own children have been prepared to, ex to excel at whatever school, even if it's challenging. 
But that's because, you know, they're, they're children of a professor. They've been given a lot of resources. I'm speaking to people that are from places where they don't have all the resources. But if they go to one of these, quote, lesser uh, elite schools, I believe that cream will always rise to the top. And they will be, even if they're maybe the smartest person at that school, they're, um, they're not going to limit themselves in their future. People who are really Korean, especially if, if they're from a disadvantaged background, will rise to the top because people will say, wow, this person has done so well coming from this place and then going to someplace uh, uh, really spectacular in grad school or beyond. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely like answers my question. So I was, I think it's also really interesting how you bring up that sometimes going to a place where you know you can succeed and where you know you'll like be more comfortable can be more important than really shooting for like that super prestigious school that might be very hard to like get a good GPA at or to even just pass classes at. So I was also wondering, uh, so like as you brought up before, um, there can be a lot of like inequalities, I think, especially once you get to this like super like elite school level. So I think another really important idea would be representation for minority students, especially in the classroom. So for you being a professor, how do you think that you can use and implement that, impl- implement that to help them? Well, in my classes that I teach, I get to do very little of the historical uh, narrative of, of physics. And it's kind of a shame. I mean, people should really know about um, who were the people behind the formulas that they're learning in my classes. Um, so because I'm not talking about history, I'm not talking about really anybody, whether it's uh, people who were underrepresented or people who are not underrepresented. It's There's just nobody. There's just formulas. And mm-hmm. I think that's too bad. I think that if I spent some time talking about Isaac Newton and Galileo. Then I could also talk about, um, you know, Latimer and uh, Marie Curie, uh, people who are um, underrepresented minorities in physics and people uh, who are different genders uh, and different identities uh, who have made huge contributions to my field. So. Uh, I think that what, what I should probably do is try to cover less material, but to do it in a more historical context. And uh, maybe this interview will be the thing that uh, encourages me because I, I already have tenure. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> and so even if I don't cover exactly the same amount of material every uh, semester, maybe I can introduce some of these historical uh, points. So. Yeah, I think that's really, like, interesting, especially from, like, such a field that is so grounded in math and in formulas to really, like, see a more human or personal side to it, I guess. So kind of as, like, a closing question, what advice do you have to give to anyone, like, minority student or otherwise, who wants to go into physics? Well, I would say look at the great physicists or people in your field that are of the same uh, background as you or similar. Um, So when I teach this class on big data, um, I have my students choose which influencers they want to do their project on. And I encourage them to find somebody that relates to them so that they can identify with those person's struggles and then victories. Um, So I would really encourage you to take some time 
looking on Wikipedia, looking on the web for people who have made contributions, learn about their life, find out where they're from, what, what struggles they went through, and maybe even contact some of those people. It is amazing how you can actually get in touch with academics because they're approachable. They would love to do a little interview uh, over Zoom with, with you if you're a high school student or, or uh, undergraduate. Um, and you can maybe get some really good insights and inspirations for, from those people. So that would be my piece of advice. Yeah, I think that's really like interesting, especially how you bring up, like you can just contact people and meet people so easily, like especially now with the internet and Zoom, like it's super easy to just hop on a call really fast and have that like encouragement that you might really need. So is there anything else that you want to say or anything else that you want to cover that you think we maybe haven't discussed yet? Um, no, I think we're pretty good now. I feel like you've really asked a lot of great questions and um, I feel like you've, you're a great interviewer and you have a bright future ahead of you. So thank you for taking some time. Thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, bye. Bye.